welcome to the Katie Halper Show. I'm your host, Katie Halper, here at the WBI station. And, of course, I'm with Gabe Pacheco, comedian, and Reggie Johnson, the engineer-in-chief. <laughs> How are you guys doing? I'm feeling pretty good. I'm feeling great. Um, awesome. Yeah, it's good. And guys, good. everyone listening to us, you probably know this, but you can check us out every Wednesday on WBAI 99.5 FM or WBAI.org. And we have a great show for you guys today. First, we have calling in from Texas, Christian Pian, who will be telling us about his brother, Alan, who is in stable condition after he was shot in the chest by off-duty officers at a Houston hospital last oh week God. while he was a hospital patient. And the shooting has many people concerned with the treatment of Alan and the presence of guns in hospitals. Why? There are guns in hospitals? Yeah. Well, we're going to get to that because that's oh, a big... Okay. That should be... You should be shocked and disturbed I by that. I feel yeah, very you, disturbed. I'm, yes, you should be. And then we'll be joined by Alexis Agathoklios. How's that from a Greek accent? Yasu. And he's a deputy legal director and attorney at the Center for Constitutional Rights. They won a major victory, which will greatly reduce the use of solitary confinement in the state of California. And then we'll be talking to NBD, hashtag NBD, no big deal, comedian extraordinaire, Margaret Cho. Oh, that's a get. That oh. is a get. Is that not? Is that a get from the gettest wow. of the gettest? Cool. And uh, she'll be cool. talking to us about her Showtime special, and tour, the Psycho Tour. Mm -hmm. With the C-H-N-O exactly. capitalized. Exactly, the Psycho. In fact, I right. don't know if it should be Psycho or Psycho. But first, let's just check in um, about some recent news and also talk about how our weeks have been and what we're up to. What are you up to, Gabe? Oh, you know what? Uh, one thing that's really exciting is that the Story Pirates, who I'm a big part of, are, are kicking off their uh, season, um, you know, September. Schools. Who's, what are Story Pirates? The Story Pirates are amazing. Uh, what we do is we go into schools and we help students uh, write stories. They write stories for us, and then we turn those stories into performances for the nice. whole school to watch. Nice. And, uh, wow. We're, we're in over 250 schools in... Uh, oh, uh, from New York to Los Angeles. Yeah, That's man. what's up. That's it's, what's all, up. it's all about literacy, Reggie. We're trying to motivate and it's inspire. It's a beautiful thing. Communication is a beautiful thing. Yeah. It is. So uh, so that's that's an exciting thing uh, that we are up to. The Story Pirates. Everybody should check them out at storypirates.org. Nice. Awesome. And last night, I saw you, Gabe, last night at your show at the Passenger Bar. You have a weekly show. Yeah, my weekly show is at Passenger Bar in Williamsburg. Really local. Really local. On South 3rd Street in Roebling. And you know what, Katie? Halper, the most exciting thing about last night's free stand-up comedy show that starts at 9.30 every Tuesday Coincidentally. is that you were on it. I was on it. I did. I came out. The people... You came I, out. I came out as, uh, as a For the crowd. For the crowd, yeah. It <laughs> was really a, fun. As a stand-up. Really fun. And uh, we had a really good audience and we had a really great lineup. John Fuglesang was on yes. the show, too. And we're going to have him on our show. John Fuglesang. Yeah. yeah I like him. him. Yeah, he's I like very, him. very funny. Smart guy. Yeah. He's a smart Real guy. smart guy. So, uh, so, but anyway, I love, I love hearing your voice on the radio. I love being here with you, but it was just so, it's so great to see you do stand up too. Thank you. Yeah. So, thanks for that opportunity. I got to check you out one of these. Yeah. You got to come. Maybe yeah. you can do something. We can all do something together. Reggie, I'll give you a hot five minutes, a hot nickel. Get yes. up there. You I, know? Wow. <laughs> all you need is a good, you need a good opener and a good closer. Everything in the middle, the people forget. So I don't know. let's talk a little bit. Speaking of opener and closer because we have so many great guests tonight we got to move forward guys this is this is how we do it we run a very tight ship i've been <laughs> i've been called a tight ship runner in my life um and i want to turn our attention to a story about iran cnn writes in a major victory for president barack obama democratic senator barbara mikulski of maryland announced support for the iran nuclear deal wednesday providing the white house the votes it needs to prevent republicans from scuttling the agreement the announcement means that at least 34 senators the number required by the constitution to sustain a veto will back obama's expected veto of a republican resolution to disapprove of the deal Mikulski is retiring at the end of her term. Okay, so guys, great news. Now, I just want to say, it looks like the Iran deal is going to go through, right? I don't want to toot our own horns here at the Katie Halper Show, which yeah. you can hear every Wednesday at 6 p.m. <laughs> on WBAI 99.5 FM or WBAI.org and on iTunes and uh, SoundCloud. But I'm just going to put it out there that we did have Becky Bond from Credo talking to us a couple weeks ago. That's true. Shaming Chuck Schumer for being a Shonda and blocking the the Iran deal and then we talked about 
Bob Menendez, who looked into his soul, and his soul told him he couldn't support the deal. The same soul to, that told him to engage in bribery and got him um, indicted. Paid, paid vacations paid using, uh, using funds from... An ophthalmologist in he, Florida. Um, a soul in a politician that has to be Exactly, mutually exclusive, right. Yeah. So I'm just saying, coincidence or not, we may have changed world history. And we also had Ali Garib, who went to high school with Gabe Pacheco, bringing it all full circle. Weird. Nice, mm-hmm. nice, mm-hmm. nice. So this cabal right in here, the three of us, we have a lot of power. Yeah, yeah. We, we pull strings, and it's thanks to you listeners that, uh, that help make us influencers. Yes. Yay. Yes, so thank you. Keep listening. So we are going to just bring in our first guest. This is Christian Payon, and his brother, Alan Payon, is 26 years old. He's in stable condition, luckily, in Houston, Texas. He is recovering from being shot in the chest. Alan had checked himself into St. Joseph's Medical Center in Houston. He was unarmed when an off-duty police officer shot him in the chest. The hospital has called Alan a combative patient. Is that in procedures, though, if someone's a combative patient? Um, That you... (laughs) Yes, I I don't know if it's I don't know if it's written, but um, I would like to. I mean, if I ran a hospital, I would say when there's a combative patient, make sure that you take out a, a deadly weapon. That's what <laughs> that's the policy. Actually, it's it's very scary. And the Huffington Post wrote an article about this that from 2000 to 2011, the rate of shootings on hospital grounds increased from nine per year to almost 17 per year. Most are perpetrated by active shooters with strong motives. 29% of shootings on hospital grounds occur in emergency rooms, and about 50% of them involve a police or security officer's guns, according to a 2012 analysis from Johns Hopkins. Many hospitals don't allow police officers to enter the emergency services facility unless they surrender their firearms to a locked box. But we're talking about Texas. You know that state that every now and then they threaten to secede? And I'm like, oh, no, whatever you do, don't secede. <laughs> that would be so terrible. What would we do without Texas? I mean, what would happen to our execution averages? <laughs> They'd be or, embarrassing. Or our, our textbook industry. Oh, my God, yes. It will truly be Mexico's problem. <laughs> oh, God, it'll be the world's problem. Yeah, well, but um, I'm, I'll be rooting for Mexico. Yeah, obviously. Yeah, ob- obviously. Yeah, obviously. Yeah, obviously. Um, so do we have uh, Christian on the line? Great. Christian, are you there? Hi, how you doing? Hi, good. Thanks so much for joining us. No problem. Glad to be on the show. And you are talking to us from Texas, where you're from, and where your brother is recovering in unstable condition? That's correct. I'm in Houston, Texas right now, uh, just with my family, trying to get us all through this terrible thing that happened to my brother. I should also add Um, that Christian is a fourth-year medical student at Mount Sinai in New York City. So when you hear Christian talking about medical procedures in healthcare, you should know that he is himself a practitioner of medicine. So can you briefly tell us what happened to your brother, what we do know, what we don't know, and how you found out about the events? On Wednesday night, Alan communicated to us that he was a lot of distress, but he's having a lot of symptoms that were disturbing to him. Um, and together as a family, we encouraged him to seek medical care. Um, Alan, having come from a family of, a, of physicians and medical students, thought a hospital would be a safe haven for him, a place where he could get treatment for what was happening to him. That night, in the midst of his mental health crisis, and there's no question that that's what this was, he drives his car uh, from his apartment over at St. Joseph's Medical Center, and en route, crashes his car into numerous parked vehicles. At this point, he's apparently taken into the hospital and assessed for his injuries. I can tell you that the next day, my parents were there corroborating the history, imploring that psychiatric evaluation be taken and to speak to a physician, and their concerns were dismissed. My folks got a call from the hospital saying that Alan was ready to be discharged from the hospital's perspective at this point, he was ready to be discharged sometime between that phone call and them walking to the hospital from a hotel not far away. He got into this altercation after becoming allegedly combative with two security guards, and they shot him. In the chest. In the chest, that's right. Now, they were reporting initially that it was the abdomen, but it was the chest. No, it was the chest. You know, I've seen the wound. Uh, bullet came in just over the right sternum. Um, very fortunate to be alive. Um, I mean, we're talking millimeters here from structures that would have caused them to die instantly. Um, you know, we're, we're fortunate that the bullet didn't hit any vital organs. 
uh, one of the vessels, um, and the bullet appears to have exited out his back, shattering a couple ribs. Um, yeah, and you know, my parents got to the hospital after hearing that their son was apparently uh, ready to be discharged, despite their wishes that he were to get a psychiatric evaluation, despite corroborating history, uh, explaining to them that they felt he wasn't himself and that he needed uh, inpatient mental health attention. Uh, and when they got there, they see a bunch of police cars and they see and hear people talking about a shooting in the hospital. And my mother and father are sitting there saying, that's crazy. There's a, there's a shooting in a hospital. How does that happen? They go over and they speak to an administrator and the administrator says, oh, so Alan's not, uh, not in the ICU anymore. He's in the intensive care unit. He's in the ICU. And my father says, how's that, how's that possible? How does that happen when you guys just told, called me to come pick him up? And when this whole time he has apparently been fine, except for all the concerns that I expressed, you know, it takes about an hour, maybe a little more for anybody to come talk to them. But eventually they come out and, you know, they tell him, look, such and such happened. The struggle ensued. Alan became aggressive uh, and they had to shoot him. You know, my, it breaks my mother's heart. She is inconsolable at that point. My dad is saying, I begged you, I begged you to get psychiatric evaluation for my son. How can this happen in a hospital? Why? Why? I told you, please, please listen to me. And nobody did. They shot him? What? How? Where did they shoot him? You know, and this now, individual from the hospital to the chest, and you know the rest. So basically what happens is you have this, from what I've read and from what you're telling us, it's this very right. scary combination of kind of medical negligence, a refusal to sufficiently treat a patient, and the excessive use of force, right? So the patient's kind of neglected and not treated in the medical healthcare way that he should be, and instead is kind of criminalized. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I think that these two police officers, um, you know, these security guards, they were put in a position that they never should right. have been in. I mean, this was a situation that they were clearly not trained to handle, and something happened. I mean, I don't know the specifics of this altercation or how they engaged Alan in that room, but I can tell you this. I mean, patients become combative and aggressive in hospitals all over the country. It'll happen tonight, you know, for anything ranging from neurologic disease to psychiatric disease to inebriation to adverse effects from drugs, and none of them, none of them, hopefully, end up getting tased and certainly not shot. So he was tased yeah. and shot? Just, yeah, that's just, correct. Just so everyone's um, clear much, on this. we know, yeah. Okay. Right. And when we were speaking in a pre-interview for today, you actually told me that you had made a kind of a prediction that he had been shot. Can you explain why you yeah. thought that? You know, the sad thing is that, you know, I was in constant communication with my father, and you know, he texted me, said, we're going to go pick him up. He said, I'm going to go talk to an administrator about getting him real treatment that he needs. Uh, and my father texted me, he's, he's in the ICU. And my next text message within 10 minutes of that first one is, wait, what, what? Did they shoot him? I mean, I instantly jumped to that conclusion. I mean, it's just it's just so sad and so indicative of so many things that are wrong with this society that I've been conditioned to fear the system that I had entrusted my brother in, and apparently rightfully so. And why was that, that you thought he, he had been shot? Look, I mean, I don't know a lot about um, all of the sequence of events that happened, but I would be remiss to say that I don't think that race probably played a role in this. So my father's from Haiti. He's an immigrant. My mother is from Mexico. Um, and, um, you know, my, my brother is a young black male. And there's no question that prejudices and biases come into play when we're talking about interactions between law enforcement and people of color, healthcare professionals and people of color, and that harm comes from those prejudices and biases. There's no question in my mind. And I'm not going to shy away from the fact that you know, I think that that may have played some role here. And I do want to stress that this is more than just about black and white. This is about the stigma of mental health in this country. It's about the way folks who are in acute mental crises are treated, um, both in the streets and in hospitals. Um, but, you know, I mean, there's a lot of issues at play, and that's one of them. It's it's. I was going to say funny, but it's not at all funny. It's interesting yeah. because it's this combination yeah. of stigma around mental illness, but also a total lack of care, right? So literally oh, your father was telling them, and your father's a physician, and your father right. knew about a previous incident that was similar. Your father and your mother right. are begging the hospital to give him a psyche eval or to, to look into it more, and the hospital is ignoring that. 
and trying to discharge him as quickly as they can, like he's, you know, a piece of clothing that they're dry cleaning or something, right? That sets up the situation, if if it's true that he was combative, right? That sets up the situation where he's not being treated, not being taken care of. There are lots of things that people can do with having um, things that you can inject into IVs. Can you talk about that and what the kind of the norm and the protocol is for when someone is having a mental health crisis? Uh, Even even in my with my limited experience, admittedly in psychiatry, and I've already rotated through that clerkship. But the reason this sounds so absurd and uh, so unusual is because it is because you know as healthcare professionals. Um, we work in environments that are supposed to be equipped to deal with this kind of thing. I mean, there are so many other interventions that you implement before you move to any kind of force. And look, I've never read anything in the medical literature that suggests the standard of care for an acute mental health crisis is a bullet. I mean, you can use medications, you can use restraints, you can, if you know that a patient is being combative, engage them in a way that's safe. Or at least it won't result in this level of harm. Yeah, I mean, when I heard this, I was entirely shocked that there was uh, that a bullet was even on the table as a tool, uh, like a, even a final uh, something that know, would even be in the building. It's yeah, it's it's crazy. I mean, it is. I mean, it absolutely is crazy. Like me and my parents were of of the mindset that that gun had no business being in the hospital in the first place. To be and, in the hospital yeah, in the first place, right? Yeah, it never should have never should have been there. Um, a firearm has no place in a hospital in our minds. I mean, do no harm. Why, if this patient is being combative and aggressive, and you know that he's acting that way, and he's in an enclosed space, I believe he was shot in his hospital room. I mean, again, we're waiting for records. But if he's in a place where you have access to so many other methods of treatment, of so many other methods of containing the situation, why would you introduce the possibility of that firearm being potentially used by this agitated patient. Not to mention, right, exactly. Not, I mean, let's let's pretend that we don't care about your, for, for argument's sake, we don't care about the patient at all. We don't care about your brother. We just care about the, the off-duty police officers who are working as guards in this hospital. There's a, like, there's a chance that, that this combative patient can grab hold of the gun. And also, again, why don't, if you want to protect the security guards or people besides your brother and you're, and you're seeing him as combative, again, why don't you have medications on hand? I mean, you see this, I know this from ER, you just inject someone with something quickly and then they become calm. Like there's so many options between um, like tending to the patient and then shooting the patient, right? Look, the truth is, you know, I mean... (laughs) As strange as it sounds, my heart goes out to these two officers. I mean, they were clearly in a situation that they were had no business handling. Um, you know, they were put in harm's way right. by the protocols and policies and the, the system that allowed them to be called before the appropriate personnel. You know, it's, it's hard to say that, but, you know, this is something that never should have happened for, from a lot of different angles. Yeah, uh, I, I really like the, the, the way that you frame that in terms of protocols, because we're looking at a breakdown of protocols on, on three different levels. One, the, the primary caregivers there in the hospital, the administrative staff that didn't listen to your parents, and mm-hmm. then also the uh, protocols of the, the security systems that were in place. Yeah. And can yeah. you um, yeah. tell us what Alan, your brother, has been has said and wants to communicate through you as a yeah. kind of a spokesperson for the family? Yeah, like I mean, I mean, I, I can't wait till people get to really know Alan. Um, so little has been said about who he is, other than um, aside from this acute mental health crisis. But you know, I, luckily, Alan now is lucid. He's coherent. Um, he's out of the ICU, um, and I've been able to talk to him and. Yeah, the sad thing is the first thing that he says when we go in there, he wakes up groggy, and this is the first time we get to see him because of a whole other host of issues that I'll talk about. Um, we get to see him after he's extubated, um, and he, he looks at me and says, Christian, he says, what, what happened to the other driver? Is, is everybody okay? He, he remembers the car crash at that point, and he's concerned that he may have hurt another driver during that part of this episode. Wow. He's concerned for the, the well-being of others, even though he's yeah. shot in the chest. Yeah, look, he's he's heartbroken that he may have hurt someone else. I mean, he's already told me that. There's no question that he wasn't himself when he encountered these two people. And the last thing he wanted to do was hurt anybody. So, you know, it just speaks to the kind of person that almost died as a result of this systemic breakdown. How many millimeters off was the shooting I mean, for look, not to be fatal? About, right. I mean, Alan is incredibly lucky to be alive. I mean, he got shot dead center in the chest here. I mean, I don't have the imaging, but from what I understand, the trajectory of this bullet, millimeters one way or another, 
basically in any direction would have resulted in his death. I mean, from what I understand, we were just a hair away from the aortic arch. This is just a, a twinge away from Alan dying right there on his hospital floor. Can you tell us about this petition that's being sent around sure. and signed? Sure, sure, yeah. I mean, you know, we're hoping to see some good come of this. And um, it really it really touched our hearts as a family to see that so many people are coming out to support him. There's a petition going out basically just condemning so much of what's been going on with this case in terms of the presence of a firearm in the hospital in the first place, in terms of the failure of the doctrine of do no harm being implemented for my brother. Um, and also in the way, you know, people have framed this. I mean, it's just so sad that we're hearing my brother being called a suspect, you know, an individual who was combative. I mean, he was a patient, all right? He was looking to get help. There's nothing that that's going to dispute that. And and we're not here to draw a line in the sand, but I think we need to come together as healthcare professionals, law enforcement, citizens, Americans, and, and say that we can do better. And, and it is beautiful to see this petition going out, and it looks like it's getting over 2,600 signatures. Um, you know, I mean, it would be something to see St. Joseph's or some of the other folks eventually sign this thing. I don't know. Right. And that petition, for everyone listening, and I'll link to it on um, in the SoundCloud and iTunes, is ipetitions.com slash petition slash Alan Payon. That's A-L-A-N-P-E-A-N. Again, that's ipetitions.com slash petition slash A-L-A-N-P-E-A-N. Well, Christian, thank you so much for yeah. joining us, and we're going to have you back on, and when you come back into New York, we'll have you in the studio, and we'd love yeah. to have updates from you about your brother. Of course. And hey, give our, so much. our best wishes to your brother and, his, and the family. I will. I will. Thank you very much, Katie. You guys take care. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. That was Christian Payon speaking to us from Houston, Texas, where his brother was recovering from being shot in the chest by off-duty officers who were acting as security guards in uh, a hospital. And where he went to seek. Oh, help. right. Right. Exactly. Like most, a lot of people who have mental health um, crises don't. He he's like the, did what the upstanding citizen thing. He did the bet, you know, what you're supposed to do. Best practices. You get yourself to the hospital, right? He put himself in the place where, in, in theory, he's going to be helped, treated, not harmed, right? Yes. Uh, but uh, that didn't really happen. I mean, it's Texas, but it's also in the reason this story is so I think scary is that it brings together so many issues, right? It brings together police brutality, excessive use of force, the failure of the healthcare system the failure of people to kind of listen to to people's relatives when the like father is telling them experts experts right he's a physician too advocates you know advocates. i mean i know that uh, when you when you have to go to to see a doctor the more you advocate for yourself or the more you have people advocating for you the better the treatment right. you're going to get is and this would be the case where he he had the best advocate possible and right. still didn't right. help no, right and of course the race stuff which we yeah. which we can, we'll get into more um but you guys, um, you're listening to the Katie Halper Show. You can listen to us every Wednesday from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. on WBAI.org or 99.5 FM. We're going to give you a kind of a chaser, if you will, because that's a, that's a sad story. Although the good news is he's recovering. And as Christian explained, he could have been killed mm -hmm. easily. I so, mean, it literally would have taken absolutely. moving the hand millimeters, right? Yeah. But we want to bring you a story about a really important victory that just happened. It was a decision that came out of California. And we're going to be talking to one of the lawyers who worked on that case. He's calling in from New York. He's a lawyer with the Center for Constitutional Rights, and his name is Alexis Agathocleos. Alexis, are you there? Yes, I am. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. How is my Greek pronunciation? You know, I, I'm, I'm quite impressed. Thank I'm you. Efharisto. <laughs> that means thank you, everyone in Greek. I'm impressed. Thank you. I went there when I was in eighth grade, and I got tapes, and I listened to them. And I still remember how to say I'm an archaeologist, and I'm 13. Very, it comes in handy. Very precocious. Yeah. Key life skills. Exactly. I'm so jealous. Exactly, yeah. Um, but Alexis, you are uh, fresh off of this exciting victory that happened just yesterday, just Tuesday, correct? Um, when the, right. the, a decision was handed down in California that is going to greatly reduce the use of solitary confinement. Absolutely. So, so the case was actually resolved yesterday in a settlement with settlement. California okay. prison officials and the governor's office. Uh, but it really does represent a, a huge victory for uh, 
those who are incarcerated in California who have been protesting for so long about the abuse that they've suffered in prolonged solitary confinement. Um, so the history of the case uh, is that, you know, for decades now, California has been warehousing thousands upon thousands of people in solitary confinement for indeterminate periods. That means they do not know when they will be released from solitary confinement um, based simply on allegations that they are affiliated with a gang. And what this um, system has meant is that California has become the state that puts more people in solitary uh, for longer periods of time than any state in the country. And what our settlement does is fundamentally transform how solitary confinement uh, will be used in California going forward. And what it does is it ends the use of prolonged long-term solitary confinement. So it is a huge victory uh, for the prisoners who organized, uh, who went on three sustained hunger strikes to draw attention to their plight, who made very specific demands of prison officials, of the legislature, um, and, and frankly, of the public, um, to, to, to take a look at what was happening to them and, and you know, take into account the fact that they are human beings who were being abused and tortured for years upon years in, in just dreadful isolation. So, so yesterday's settlement really represents a vindication of their sustained collective action and their sort of extraordinary political organizing in the most extreme of circumstances. And were you surprised by this decision, or were you expecting it? We were working towards trial in this case. The case has been going on for several years now. It's been in very intensive litigation, uh, and we were slated to go to trial in December. Uh, you know, a few months ago, we entered into settlement negotiations with the state of California while, while the case was proceeding. It was sort of on parallel track. What happens now is, you know, we, we finally reached agreement after a lot of back and forth uh, and some very productive conversations. Um, we, we reached agreement and, and were able to publicly announce that settlement yesterday. Uh, what happens now is that the settlement has been uh, submitted to the court, and the court has to actually approve it. So there's a, there's a rigorous process by which the court has to examine the settlement um, and give people who will be affected by the settlement, because it is a class action that affects thousands and thousands of prisoners across California, a chance uh, to weigh in um, and, and hold a hearing uh, and give final approval to the settlement. Okay. Uh, but what we're waiting for now is preliminary approval, which will trigger uh, the provisions of the settlement. So we should be seeing... Uh, these reforms take hold very, very soon. Okay. And can you explain to us who they were putting in solitary confinement and what the justification was for that? So what, what the settlement does is it transforms California's use of solitary confinement from, from what's known as a status-based system to a behavior-based system. So under California's old regime, any prisoner who was identified as a gang affiliate could be sent to solitary, to the SHU, for an indefinite term based merely on allegations of gang affiliation, regardless of whether they had ever violated a single prison rule or ever engaged in, a, in an act of violence, for example. Uh, so all they had to do was come up with some kind of evidence of affiliation, and that could be something as simple as you are reading a book by George Jackson, a famous Black Panther prisoner, and we interpret that as evidence of affiliation with a gang. What gang, also, first of all? I mean, what gang? Well, a black there... nationalist gang. Oh, okay. That was, okay. That's what they took to right. be evidence of your affiliation with a black nationalist gang. Similarly, they would use possession of Aztec or Mayan imagery as evidence of your affiliation with a Latino gang. Wow, Wait, so Gabe, and, I just so, want you to know, Alexis, that Gabe uh, Pacheco, who is here with us every week, his father is from Mexico, and I think... By that definition, your father is a gang member, or some of your relatives, at least. I doodle Aztec uh, symbols all over my notebooks, and I have a copy of George Jackson's book in my in my bedroom. Do you so, really? Yeah. Oh my! You're, he's a double gang member, then. Well, and and really, no no exaggeration here. Those two facts would be taken as California by California prison officials as justification to place you in indeterminate solitary confinement. 
So Gabe never get caught for a crime in California. Yeah, and I know that I've been in a sensory deprivation chamber for an hour, and it was one hour too long for me, so I don't... And you're actually serious, because that was an exhibit, right? Yeah. So what the settlement does is it really transforms that system. So no longer can California place a person in solitary confinement simply based on allegations of gang affiliation. From now on, California can only send gang-validated prisoners to the shoe if they are found guilty at a due process hearing of the most serious uh, rule violations. And we're talking about things like murder, violence, uh, the most um, serious and egregious uh, levels of assault. And what is um, the justification for that? Like, in theory, does gang membership mean you're inherently a, a risk to fellow prisoners? You know, it was sort of a form of preemptive detention. Uh, it was an assumption based on this sort of indicia of your gang affiliation that you are violence prone. And if allowed to stay in the general prison population, you might commit an act of violence, as opposed to an analysis of, well, have you done anything that makes you so unsafe that we have to remove you from the general prison population? Yeah. It, it really essentially was a form of preemptive detention. And what are some of the effects of long-term solitary confinement? Well, you know, the, the effects of long-term solitary confinement are, are, are profound. Now, there has been an understanding for quite some time in the psychological community that isolating someone for a prolonged period of time has very devastating effects. So people develop um, symptoms of high anxiety, of heart palpitations, of uh, blurred vision, of I insomnia, inability to sleep, of a strong startle reaction. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And we also know through, through a series of studies that incidences of suicide and self-harm are far, far higher in solitary confinement units than in the general prison population. One thing we were able to do in this case that was to bring uh, together a, a much broader range of experts that had ever really been amassed in, in litigation challenging solitary confinement. So, so we worked with experts from the psychological and psychiatric community, but we also brought in neuroscientists medical doctors um, who have been starting to study the effects of isolation and have realized that if you put someone into prolonged uh, isolation, it actually affects the brain. It, it, it actually results in permanent change to how your brain functions. And then also, we were able to look at medical records and determine that there were much higher levels, for example, of hypertension in uh, the, the community of people who were kept in solitary confinement. We know a lot more than we did 10, 20 years ago about the effects of, of solitary, and I think that is why we're seeing a deepening movement away from solitary confinement in this country. And again, these, pa these um, inmates, I was going to say patients, because of the story before where our, our culture conflates um, inmates and patients, but they are not necessarily in jail for life, correct? No, absolutely not. Um, you know, some of our clients uh, were, were serving prison sentences for low-level drug offenses. You know, it has nothing to do... Ending up in solitary confinement does not have anything to do with uh, what crime uh, you were convicted of. So isn't it not in our interest? Forget the, hum the caring at all about human beings, right? Like, wouldn't we, from a kind of law and order uh, perspective, just not want to torture people and then re-release them with PTSD into society? That's absolutely right. I mean, the, the fact is is that uh, people are released directly from solitary confinement into uh, the community and have incredibly difficult time adjusting um, and are, are, are essentially unable to function uh, in, for example, a public setting. You know, there's extreme anxiety experienced by people who have been in solitary and are then sort of thrust into the street. So, so it doesn't make any sense. Um, but from a correctional perspective, um, there seems to be a growing consensus within correctional field that solitary isn't working. Not only that's inhumane, but it doesn't work. It doesn't actually reduce prison violence. It doesn't actually solve any problems within prisons. So just today, we saw the Association of State Correctional Administrators calling for a limit to the use of solitary around the country. And that is a, that is a remarkable shift in the conversation uh, that a correctional association has actually called for this publicly. Well, thank you so much, Alexis, for joining us. And we will link to you and your work at CCR. 
And the website for CCR is? www.ccrjustice.org. Great. Thank you so much again. And you are listening to The Katie Halper Show. You can hear us every Wednesday at 6 p.m. on WBAI.org or 99.5 FM. We are so excited to bring our next guest who is Margaret Cho. You may have heard of her. We're going to take a quick break and play a song that's actually related to what Margaret Cho talks about often in her comedy. And this song is Commitment Ceremony. It's by Julie Goldman. We tried to bring it to you last week. There were some technical difficulties, so we're going to listen to a little bit of a clip from that. And then we're going to bring in Margaret Cho. We can be special friends and live together. We'll buy a house and be roommates forever. We can be partners like Jacoby and Meyer. You'll buy the car and I'll fix the tire because I'm butch. And when you're down, your burden I will carry because our love is strong. We ought to get commitment ceremony. Hello, and that was Julie Goldman's Commitment Ceremony, and we are here at the Katie Halper Show on WBAI 99.5 FM, WBAI.org. You can hear us every Wednesday at 6 p.m., and we are so thrilled to have with us, joining us on the phone, the inimitable, the legend before her time, Margaret Cho. Margaret, are you there? I'm here. Hi. Thank you so much for calling in. Thank you. Thank you. Margaret is a three-time Grammy and Emmy-nominated comedian. And she is a social critic, I would say. And she is launching her Psycho tour and her special called Psycho, which is on Showtime later this month. It'll be on Showtime on September 25th. And uh, so that's when it premieres. And it's called Psycho. Great. And so you pronounce it Psycho, not Psycho. Right. The whole title is there's no I in team, but there is a show in cycle. Nice. So that's what the what the the joke is. And you're going to be hitting up cities like L.A., Chicago, San Francisco, and then you're going to Europe in the winter. Yeah, I'm going to Warsaw and wow. Berlin and uh, Vienna, and I'll also do some shows in London and Copenhagen and uh, Stockholm and um, Antwerp and Zurich. Um, yeah, so it's exciting. I, I'm, oh, I think I'm, I'm actually going um, back to Oslo, too. So, yeah, it should be cool. And tell us what you talk about. I actually was able to see a little preview of Psycho, and it's hilarious. And you talk about so many important things, ranging from sex to politics. You talk a lot about Robin Williams and Joan Rivers. Can you talk a bit about how they inspired you and your trajectory? Well, I um, learned how to do comedy from both of them. Um, from Robin, I always had to follow him. He, he would uh, go up at this little comedy club that I lived across the street from when I was a kid. And so I would always have to go up after him. And that's how I learned how to do comedy. And then Joan was always very supportive of me. I think um, just took care of me for a long time. So it's great to be able to talk about them in the show and, and um you know, it's a tribute to them and that comedy is really a mentor uh, kind of driven art form. So that's an important thing to, you know, kind of my development. And um, now it's about taking on the role of being a mentor after your mentors have passed. And I didn't know this. I knew that Robin Williams was a huge advocate for the homeless and that he inspired your own uh, campaign, which I'd like to talk to you about in a minute. But I, uh, through watching Psycho, the Showtime special, I... I learned that he actually had it in his contract that a certain percentage of the crew of his films would have to be hired um, from, from the homeless population. 
Yes, it's really profound. I don't know of any other um, celebrity or anybody who does anything like that, but it was just part of who he was. He was very invested in giving homeless people a dignified wage, and he spoke in front of Congress numerous times to improve um, the status of life of people who live on the street. So he was incredibly compassionate and very generous um, in the way that he was when in regards to homelessness and um, taking care of people who were homeless. He was really a, a, a pioneer, actually. You know, when you sort of think about, like, celebrity activists, he was kind of behind the scenes doing this for many years before anybody really understood the extent of his philanthropy. So I, I, I think he was a great example of somebody who can be an activist but actually... In, in, a, in a very quiet way, and that's very dignified and really remarkable. Yeah, I mean, most people didn't know that, right? So he didn't, this was not about a mm-hmm. PR move. He was, but it's great that he actually put it in his contract. It would be great if other people did that. Yeah. And can you talk about how he yeah. inspired your your activism around homelessness? It was called Be Robin. We used the hashtag Be Robin. And we would do these shows on the street, and we would collect food and clothing and money for homeless people, and then homeless people would come and take it. And then the shows would last several hours, and it expanded into people um, donating their time. Hairdressers would come and, and cut homeless people's hair. Um, and we just have a big show on the street for everyone who came and participated. And it was something that went for about two months. It was really cool. I mean, I think it helped the city a lot. Uh, we got a lot of wonderful, you know, donations together for homeless uh, shelters like um, the Larkin Street Youth Center and many other places. So we were able to really help out the community there by just being present on the street, being um, there. And, and, you know, it gave us something to do with our grief. And a lot of the San Francisco comedy community, we really relied on him. And so our grief was really overwhelming. So it was a way to channel our grief into doing something positive that remembered his philanthropic life um, and also um, was in the spirit of street performance, which is another passion of his. Now, listeners may not know this, but your fa- your parents, who you describe as conservative, um, your father actually kind of had you tutored by gay men as a child in his bookstore. And you, uh, in mm-hmm. an interview that we did before, you explained how he was it's kind of inter- interested in having you exposed to that culture. Can you talk a little bit about that and in retrospect, whether it's surprising to you that he chose to do that? Well, it's not surprising, but it's, it's great because he knew that there are things that he wouldn't be able to do and so that he would sort of have to farm that out a little bit um, to other people. And he specifically wanted me to be around gay men because he felt that gay men knew all about literature and art and fashion and politics and, and, and a real grasp on culture. So he wanted me to like figure out who my favorite bands are going to be by talking to gay men. I think um, that's very progressive and, and, and really it, it was the right thing and I, I'm really grateful for that. I mean, they're, my family's conservative, but not exactly. They're conservative by themselves, but they also um, have a pretty far-reaching view and liberal sense of themselves. I, I like that, that he uh, outsourced your liberal arts education. It's like the most benign yeah. stereotyping. Like, right. oh, they'll understand, you know, fashion and music. Yeah. So here you go. Right. <laughs> Handle that. Yeah, it's really, it's really kind of funny, but it actually worked out totally well. So that's good. I felt very well-rounded. Right. And your father wrote jokes? Mm-hmm. He's an author now, so yes. Yeah, and so did you, that gave you a big leg up in uh, in comedy, having that at home, that structure from him, or? I think so. I think you sort of understood what jokes were from, um, you know, like sentence structure. Um, and all, but I mean, comedy is very different in every culture. So this is in Korean. So it was not exactly the same kind of direct translation that you could make. It's sort of different. Now, I see that on your Twitter, uh, Margaret, you have a tweet that I'm going to have to edit a little bit because there's no cursing. And by the way, I really appreciate mm-hmm. you doing this radio appearance, even though I know that as a comedian, you and as I do, too, really like to pepper our speech with expletives because it's very poetic. So mm-hmm. I thank you for, yeah. for doing this, um, <laughs> this, this family-friendly program. Yeah, no strong flavors in yeah, our language exactly. today. Exactly, mm-hmm. yeah. No pepper, no salt, no... Uh, cilantro, Cilantro. Even. 
which is very Ooh. divisive. But so you I have, love it. I, I do know. too. Do you know it's a genetic thing whether or not you like cilantro? Yeah, for some people yeah, it tastes like soap. PH, yeah. Yeah, the pH balance, I think it, it's alkaline something i don't know right i wonder if people are by by curious like by on cilantro by cilantro or if i think it's only like like one or the other i think you're i don't think there's a kinsey spectrum when it comes to cilantro so you tweeted f blank 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 kim davis i will marry you instead and then you have a picture of kim davis kim davis is the kentucky clerk who's breaking the law by refusing to marry not just gay couples, but straight couples, too, because that's how strongly she feels about this. And you have a very funny image on your Twitter that you tweeted out, straight out of appeals, because she has no legal standing to be doing what she's doing. We're, no. I, just, I wanted to. So what what is you what are you suggesting here that you will marry them yourself? Can you explain this campaign? Well, in my shows, um, I have uh, in my live shows when I do this tour is each. City, I'm going to marry one couple. I have the, uh, I, I started marrying couples, uh, gay and lesbian couples in City Hall in San Francisco in um, 2006. So it was something that I was just given this gift by Gavin Newsom to be able to do. And um, I have a, a whatever accreditation from some of all my ministries, so I can actually perform wedding ceremonies everywhere. Wow. So I'm looking forward to doing that um, for my shows. Thank God for Kim Davis, right? Yeah. Because well, she's going to give you more business. Overly, I know. She's so overly, I don't know. She's an inflated sense of who she really is in terms of this whole decision of this conversation. You know, it's oh like, God, yes. this, this is now passed, you know, this is so, this is so now in violation of the constitution. So it's very, it's really ridiculous. Well, what's interesting is that during, there's this vi- viral video that has gone around where um, couples are asking her to marry them and to grant them a license. And she's saying, no, um, and she's saying it is a heaven or hell decision for her. It's not a light issue for me. It's a heaven or hell decision. This is Kim Davis, uh, the clerk in Kentucky, refusing to give people marriage licenses. Um, what's interesting mm-hmm. is that during this confrontation that she has with a couple of couples, they ask, uh, actually, we're going to play a little part of this just, just to demonstrate this point. This is Kim Davis having a little bit of a, a scuffle with the people trying to get married, and then we're going to go back to Margaret Cho. Absolutely ludicrous. Don't smile at me. I'm not being disrespectful to you. You absolutely have disrespected us. Second-class citizens is what you're doing. You're telling us that we don't deserve the same rights that you do, that you have, that you've enjoyed your entire life. Would you do this to an interracial couple? A man and a woman. How many times have you been married, Kim? I just want you all to know that we are not issuing marriage license today, Why? pending. In contempt of court. What appeal is left? Pending the appeal in the Sixth denied. Circuit. The appeal, the appeal stay has been denied. Mm-hmm. Right. The injunction so, is the order that you're supposed to issue marriage license. And we're not issuing marriage license today. The Supreme Court denied your stay. We are not issuing marriage license today. So Based would, on what? I would ask you all Why to. Why are you not go issuing ahead marriage and, licenses today? Because I'm not. Under Why? whose authority are you not issuing? So that was Kim Davis. Um, Margaret, I, I'm, I think you heard that, right? That she she explained mm-hmm. that she was doing that in God's authority, which is good to know that she's mm-hmm. she's so humble, um, as <laughs> is every servant of God is supposed to be. But also, I don't know if you heard, uh, it wasn't that loud, but the one of the people there asks her, how many times have you been married, Kim? And I just want our, mm-hmm. our listeners to know, guess what marriage this is for Kim? Four. It's her fourth marriage. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I, I'm fine with divorce. I'm fine with all that stuff. I mean, I don't care. But shouldn't she be like sitting in a corner repenting or something according to her own philosophy? Right. It's so hypocritical. But you'll find a lot of people that do attack marriage equality are rather hypocritical. Look at the Jugers. I mean, right. that's the classic example of this kind of hypocrisy. So we're seeing it a lot. Right. I'm I'm a Jew for Jesus. I think that I have a better grasp of Christianity than lots of Jews. Mm-hmm. I mean, than lots of yeah. Christians, excuse me, than lots of Christians. Yeah. And J- Jesus exactly. was a Jew, so we have that in common. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that. Yeah. But, um, and Margaret, uh, Margaret, you also talk about abortion and immigration in your stand-up, and you have this gift to make extremely serious things comedic, which is, which is so great. Um, I don't know if you saw this, but the Pope has announced that women can 
now be forgiven for having abortions if, as long as they're contrite and have regret in their hearts. So, well, that's that's not. <laughs> I know, isn't, isn't as that long nice? as you feel bad about it. I know, as long as you feel bad about it. But I wonder if you could do yeah, it, thought, yeah. and then like, if I were Catholic, I would have an abortion, go to the priest, be like, "Oh, I feel terrible. Can you forgive me?" Then he'd say yes. Then I, you know, get pregnant again, have another abortion, go to the priest again, and then it would like turn into a rom com, and and I'd make him leave the priesthood, and we get married or something. But that's yeah, that's probably not what's going to happen with most couples. But ha- what do you uh-huh. think? How would you do it? Well, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't think that. It, well, I'm not sure why there should be regret if you, you know, if you should be able to be the architect of your own life, and you should be able to have these rights. To me, regret um, is an odd price to pay for something that should be free. Anyway, right. It's choice. Right. So, I, I don't know. I mean, it's nice, I guess, that he's saying that we can, we can be forgiven for anything. But you know, I, I'm not sure what the regret has to do with it. Right. Well, I'm just waiting for them to issue a forgiveness to uh, popes for being in Hitler Youth, as the last pope was in. <laughs> uh, not that I blame mm-hmm. anyone for doing compulsory service. Uh, I wouldn't have risked my life necessarily. I wouldn't have had the choice because I'm not Aryan. But uh, thank God for small favors. Wouldn't have had that moral dilemma. <laughs> but you'd think that God's Ooh. messenger on earth would have uh, been able to make that choice. And Margaret. Uh, I know. So anything else you want to tell our listeners before we say goodbye and tell us where we can find you online and what we should be looking forward to besides your tour and your Showtime special September, um, sorry, uh, uh, yeah, this fall? September 25th. September 25th. Yeah, September 25th. Great. It's on Showtime, and, um, which is really exciting, and I'll be on tour, and people can find out about everything um, on my website, margaretshow.com. Um, you could also... Check out my Twitter, which is at Margaret Cho. I'm very active on there. Yes. And, um, I, yeah, I'll be out and touring and um, coming to your city most likely. Yes. Thank you so much, Margaret Cho. And everyone go see her and listen to her. She's hilarious. She'll make you think and, and laugh and cry of, of hysteria. Bye, guys. Thank you. See you next week. Bye, Margaret. Thanks. Bye. Thank you. Bye.